I have a lot this morning I want to share for Father's Day. I pray more than anything that today I can encourage you greatly uh, to keep going and, and fighting the battles. And we're going to look at First uh, Samuel chapter 16 and 17. We're going to continue in the series that um, we've started, The Heart of Kings. And this morning we're going to look at David and Goliath, a very familiar passage. Uh, but I want to lace into all of it just the importance of fatherhood and the importance of being the men, and for that matter, women as well, that God has called us to be. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful for Your sweet Spirit here this morning. God, we are so thankful, Lord, that there is nothing that You cannot do. You set the demon-possessed free. You heal the sick. You raise the dead. God, You saved the lost. And Lord, we are just so blessed to serve the one true living God. Lord, this morning I pray that You would anoint me to encourage Your people. God, that You would be exalted as we're reminded how powerful our God is. How great and wonderful You are. What an honor it is to serve You. Lord, we pray that You would meet needs in this place this morning because You are still enough. Father, we pray that faith would arise in our hearts and that if there's any need in our life, God, for salvation, emotional healing, physical healing, uh, God, just the, the strength to forgive those that have trespassed against us, whatever the need is of the hour this morning, Lord, would You meet that need in our lives and in our hearts? Be lifted up and exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to work all the way through chapter 16 and 17, so I don't really have a choice text this morning. Um, we'll just get started. Last week was somewhat of a, a sad week in when we looked at the fall of King Saul. And we're not done with Saul yet, because Saul's reign still goes on for many more years. But if you remember last week, God eventually said, I'm done with Saul. And even though in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 13, Samuel told Saul that had you obeyed God, your kingdom would have endured forever. Eventually, Samuel had to come and, and pronounce judgment on King Saul and say, because you have not listened and obeyed the Lord, God has made another to take your place. A man who will be after God's own heart. And we see that happen with David in 1 Samuel 16. Look with me at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. This is a really important verse for those of us who have ever felt discouraged. For those of us who have ever felt defeated. Now, I understand that Samuel is the one that was mourning. But the reason Samuel was mourning is because Saul was not. Saul should have been mourning. And while our text deals with the mourning of Samuel, you'll see the principle throughout the Word of God. That when we're truly broken over our sins and we truly come to God with an honest and a contrite heart, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And the best thing I can tell you, if you've fallen on your face, if you haven't, one day you will. We all do. 
Don't sit around and whine about it. Man, tell God you're sorry. Get an honest heart. Make sure you're broken over your sin. Don't just sweep it under the carpet like Saul wanted to do. But here is the counsel of God. How long are you going to mourn about this thing? Get up and go and do what God's called you to do. Don't just sulk in your failure. Don't just sulk in your defeat. Don't just feel so defeated like you you failed God so bad so you don't ever want to try again. Listen, my friend, we all fail. Every one of us. Every single one of us, myself included, under the sound of my voice, we fail. We make mistakes. We have weaknesses. We get in the flesh. We do things we shouldn't do. Say things we shouldn't say. Have attitudes we shouldn't have. And when you really just blow it, don't lay and waller in your self-pity. Get up out of that thing as basically as God's told the Samuel, how long are you going to cry about this thing? And you know what God's basically saying? I have a plan. You know, my, my plan for your life is not defeated because you fell over one of the enemy's traps. My, my plan for my kingdom and my purpose for you and my ability to accomplish in you is not destroyed because you fell and because you got in a bad predicament. Get up and go do what God's called you to do. And so that's what God tells Samuel. And we find Samuel, uh, he goes and he does what God tells him to do. And he comes to the house of Jesse. And Jesse brings all of his sons in, at least seven of the eight. And none of them are who is going to be anointed king. And in verse 7, we see this passage. You may have heard it and not known where it was. Samuel was looking at uh, uh, Eliab and thought, oh, this is the one. He looks strong. He looks smart. Surely this guy is going to be king. But the Lord said to Samuel in verse 7, Do not look at his outward appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man does, for the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is comforting to know that God doesn't look at necessarily all of our outward actions. He looks at the heart. It's important to understand that God sees through the outward actions and that He's not, um, He's not deceived by them either. He knows our heart. But I want to say something about this passage that I believe is very important. And a lot of times we misapply it. The Bible says this. Man looks on the outward appearance. That's what it says. Now, if we, brothers and sisters, are to be a witness to this lost and dying world, then it is important that our outward appearance is consistent with the heart that we claim to have. Now, I, I, don't, you know, I, I don't mean that in a legalistic sense. I'm not saying you need to wear a suit when you come to church. I'm not talking about that. But so often in our culture, there's kind of this attitude that, well, you know, God knows my heart so I can live how I want to live and speak the way I want to speak and act the way I want to act and it, do, it doesn't have any effect whatsoever. That's not true. Man looks on the outward appearance because that's all that he can see. And so we do have a responsibility, though God looks at our hearts and though ultimately I, I want to live to please God and though ultimately I understand I answer to Him alone, I have a responsibility to have an outward appearance that is consistent with what I claim because for many people in this world, you and I might be the only Bible they ever read. And so this passage does not teach that the outward appearance is not important. It just teaches us that God is deeper than man and God is able to see past that outward appearance 
to the heart of the matter, which is who we really are. And that's what God was looking for in a king. He was looking for a man after his own heart. And Samuel said to Jesse, he'd already looked at seven of his sons, are these all the young men here? And then he said, there remains yet the youngest. There he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. That word ruddy kind of means uh, red hair, which was considered sort of a handsome feature in that culture, with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Here we see David come onto the scene. We're about to look at the story of David and Goliath, possibly the most famous and well-known story in the entire Bible worldwide, David versus Goliath. But here we see David come into the scene. I want to note again that David was doing what? He was tending the sheep. And we see God finding a man in his work. You remember God came to Saul when Saul was in his work. David was a man who was faithful about the small things in life. And the Bible teaches that we should do everything we do as unto the Lord. Do you realize, Christian, that that means there is nothing you do that's not important? Everything that you do should be done as if it's unto the Lord. And David had this heart. He had this mentality. The Bible calls him a man after his own after the Lord's own heart. Samuel took the horn and anointed him. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look at David's life from this moment forward. Most of you know the story. Did David become king the next day? No. Was it finished in God's eyes? Yeah, it was done. God had already decided. But the way in which that takes place doesn't always work on our timetable. David is actually going to have a hard road ahead of him. And yet, here we see him anointed king. I believe at this stage in his life that neither David nor his family really understood what this anointing meant. I mean, after all, they did not know that Saul had been rejected. Israel was still fairly excited about having their king. And later, David would come to fully understand what this anointing really meant upon his life. We find in verses 14 through 17 that Saul became deeply distressed. I want to preach on David today and I will come back to Saul next week. But I want to say that at this stage in Saul's life, he he really starts to turn psychotic. He becomes very paranoid. Uh, He begins to uh, think that everybody is against him. No doubt if Saul knew that David had been anointed king by Samuel, that Saul would have tried to have him killed right away. We know this because later, once Saul catches on, Saul exhausts the rest of his life trying to kill David. We see that Saul is distressed by a spirit from the Lord that had troubled him. And he became so troubled that the people around Saul, his, his, uh, those that were closest to him, said, man, something's wrong with you. you something is, mentally, something's messed up with you, king. And maybe you ought to have somebody come play some soothing music to cool you down. 
And he said, I think that sounds like a good idea. Do you know of anybody that, that can, that's up to the task? And they go and they, they get David. Apparently David was skilled at the harp. And in verse 18 of 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see Saul and David for the first time begin their life together. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war. Those are interesting statements to be made of David at a young age. We'll find out soon why. Prudent in speech and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat and sent them with his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. We see that David became the armor-bearer of Saul. At this stage in Saul's life, Saul does not see David as a threat. And Saul was the type of person that so long as he thought David was beneficial to his own personal needs, he loved David. But eventually this would change when Saul would begin to see David as a threat. The Bible says whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that troubling spirit, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. I want you to think with me for a moment as we're studying and trying to draw the big picture of this, the life of Israel's first two kings. Wouldn't this be kind of an interesting place for David? I mean, David knew that Samuel had anointed him. I don't know if he fully understood the significance of what that would look like and how that would play itself out. But he did know in some ways that it could be a threat to Saul. And yet, he's faithful enough to come and soothe Saul, to play the harp when the harp needs played, to be faithful in the things that God has called him to be faithful for. And I want to say this this morning to you and I. We will never go wrong loving our enemies, Forgiving those who spitefully use us and blessing those who curse us. We will never go wrong doing good to anybody as if we're being good unto the Lord. You never go wrong doing that. And we see that about David. David truly was a man after God's own heart. David was a man who said, you know what? It's not about my own self-interest. It's not about promoting myself to the kingdom. After all, I was just a sheep boy out taking care of the sheep. And Samuel called me in. If God's going to make this thing happen, God's going to make it happen. I don't have to fight. I don't have to be deceptive. I don't have to trick Saul. I don't have to find some way to, to, to further this process. I'm just going to trust God. And we see that with David. And now we enter into the story of David and Goliath. And for sake of time this morning, because I'm confident most of you know the story of David and Goliath, I just want to look at how God, in His infinite wisdom, begins to bring about His process in our lives. You know what would look like? Everything's bad. Except for David. Put David aside. Let's just look at Israel. Right now, in 1 Samuel 17, Israel is scared like chickens. The warriors won't fight. Their king won't fight. The Philistines are taunting them. You know the devil wants to taunt us? He wants to taunt us and scare us and make us think that we can't fight, that we're weak. 
And they had this one giant of a man named Goliath. And Goliath would come and he would stand and he would defy the whole armies of God. And he wanted people to fight one-on-one, which is not generally a very smart idea. That's the way that the lion tries to kill the weakest. It'll, it'll get one of us off alone. We need each other. And Goliath said, I'll just fight one-on-one. Nobody wanted to fight him. Saul is, is, is sort of turning into this madman. It's already affecting his family. It's a, all the people that are closest to Saul are seeing it. Israel, the courage that Israel had. If you remember when we looked at Saul's uprise, the uprising of Saul. And, and you remember when they went and killed Nahash the Ammonite and said, we're going to come together and we're going to fight for what is right. Now they won't even fight one man. It would look like everything is wrong, but ultimately God is working out His will. Can I confess to you this morning, I don't fully understand the sovereignty of God and, and man's free will and how all that works. I just know that it is. I know that God is sovereign and that God finishes what He started. That God has a plan. I don't, I, I don't fully understand how... Saul's kingdom would have been established forever, but yet David still was part of God's plan. I don't confess to be able to comprehend these things. All I know is they're true. And that God is sovereign. And that God will finish His plan. And that no matter how bleak a situation might look in our lives, our God is able to deliver us. One of the greatest analogies I ever saw to understand this is a chess game. And we see this divine, eternal chess game going on between the Maker of heaven and earth and Lucifer, the fallen angel that we know as Satan. And in our minds, most of us are so deceived into thinking that Satan is so powerful and that he's the master chess player and that God is on his heels just trying to find ways to maneuver so that we don't lose and that eventually in the end there's going to be one final move and God's going to win and and then we're all going to be wowed. You want to know what that chess game's really like? It'd be like me playing chess with my five-year-old. God's in control the whole time. Manipulating Satan's very moves. And it might look to the onlooking world like the five-year-old is doing well and knows what he's doing, but the master chess player is just letting the thing play it out for a time in his divine sovereignty. I think about, for example, the cross. The cross of Christ. It sure would have looked like Satan made the greatest chess move ever. That he was winning the battle as Christ was being crucified and as he finally cried out with his last breath, it is finished, and he yielded up the ghost, and Christ, the Son of God, made in flesh, breathed his last breath and died, it would have looked like Satan won. But then you hear from heaven, checkmate. You had to make that move, and I manipulated it from the very beginning. And now the blood has been shed that has allowed me to redeem every single person that will believe on the name of God. That is our God, people. He is a divine God that is in control at all times. 
And He is in control of our lives. He is in control of His church. You know, the devil wants us to look everywhere else to think he's winning the game. The Republicans are in control. The Democrats are in control. This man's president. That man's president. Hey, it doesn't affect God's sovereignty and God's ability to accomplish God's plan from the eternal pages of history. Our God is in control no matter who else thinks they're in control. And we see that here in the life of David and what's happening here with Goliath. This morning, I want to say the story of the little guy whipping the giant does have something to do with Father's Day. And for that matter, life in general. Because all of us face giants. And I want to ask the question, how do we stand confident as we face giants in our life? I promise to be as brief as I can this morning. But I I ask that you pay a special close attention to the next 15 minutes of what I want to share from my heart. Because all of us right now, under the sound of my voice, are facing giants of some form of another in our own personal lives. And the giant that I'm facing might be different from the giant that you're facing. We have giants, you know, as a ministry that we face together. I want to ask the question, how do you stand confident in the face of giants? How do you be that David, that, that young lad that's got enough courage to say, give me a stone and a sling and let me at him? Because what we find is that most of the time we're afraid to face the giants. Most of the time we're like the rest of the crowd and, and, we, and we all come together and nobody, nobody really wants to go out and face that giant. And it's really because we're afraid of failure. One of the most important things that you can understand about spiritual warfare and about just being the man or woman that God wants you to be, it's okay to fail. It is. You're going to fail. Have you ever became great at a sport that you didn't fail at first? Have you ever become really good at hitting a baseball without missing it? Have you ever become really good at hitting free throws without missing hundreds first? Have you ever been great at anything in your life that you didn't try and fail at over and over and over again? Too often we're afraid to try because we don't want to fail. This morning I can guarantee one way to never, ever, ever lose a battle to the giants in your life. Guarantee. And that is to stay on the other side of the river and refuse to fight. But there's no honor in that. We have to be willing to look the giants in our lives straight in the eyes and say, I come in the name of the Lord. And God is going to give me the strength to overcome this thing. So how do we stand confident? All of us face giants. Every family does. Even the family of faith faces giants. The church struggles in a world of giants. So how do we stand confident in them? The first thing that we have to understand is that David's confidence was in the Lord. In verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Listen, I don't know what anybody's facing this morning, what you're going through, but I know this. If you are a blood-bought, born-again child of God, your God is the God of the host of heavens. 
He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. He has the power through which when His name is spoken, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, you, my friend, are on the right side. And what you've got to remember, if you're going to face the giants in your life, you've got to remember that it's not your strength you've got to trust in. It's not the strength of the enemy you need to be afraid of. You need to keep your focus on the fact that you belong to God Almighty. He has a plan for your life. He is able to accomplish His plan. His strength has been imputed to you. The life of Christ has been given to you. And I'm telling you this morning, I believe with all of my heart that God Himself in His divine sovereignty sets up these giants so that He can make His children look big. So that He can make His children look great and mighty through His power. So that ultimately His name is glorified. All of us like to defeat the giant, don't we? Everybody likes to be on the winning team. When you're in the Super Bowl, everybody wants to be on the field. But if you're going to get to the Super Bowl, you're going to have to show up to the mini camps, and you're going to have to show up to practice, and you're going to have to work hard, and you're going to have to do everything else to get there. All too often our problem is we just want the giant. You know, we just, we just want the great victory. David, we saw, was a man who was faithful to the small things in his life. And if we're going to have the courage to take down the giants that we face, we're also going to have to learn to be small, uh, faithful in the small things as well. David's confidence was, was in his God. I want you to listen to this statement and let it sink in. David came in the name of the Lord, and that was enough. David came... In the name of the Lord. And that was enough. They sang it this morning. Jesus is enough. He is all that I need. You know what we need to understand, church? Our God is enough. You don't have to have everything else in the world. We don't have to have the latest uh, media. We, we don't have to have the latest uh uh, um, thoughts from today's prevailing minds. You don't have to be the smartest person on earth. You don't have to be the richest person on earth. You don't have to be the most successful person on earth. All that you need to have is the Lord Jesus Christ on your side. And that is enough to take down the giants in your life. Now, what are some of the giants that we face? I was thinking personally about Father's Day. The word father deals with a parent. Can I be honest? Parenting in today's society is somewhat of a giant. I mean, listen, I, I, I feel like I'm a pretty good dad. But when I'm walking around Walmart and my kids are misbehaving and I'm wanting to do something about it, I'm looking around for video. <laughs> you know? You get SRS called on you for tapping your kid on the hand. Physical abuse. And we have all of these voices, you know. I mean, it, it, it's, it's never ending. It started with Dr. Spock, you know, don't, about don't ever discipline in any negative form whatsoever. Only positive, only positive. And, and I'm, not, I'm not here this morning trying to tell you how to parent. I'm just saying there's so many voices about parenting. It can kind of be overwhelming to try to parent in public. 
you know, what do they think about high parent? What do they think about high parent? And, and it can kind of, it's this giant. And then ultimately, if you're a Christian, deep in your heart, you just want to do it the best that God wants you to do it. I mean, that's really all you're concerned about. And how do I do that if, you know, my neighbors think this is wrong or they think here's how I should do it or the pastor thinks I should do it this way or that way? And it can be this kind of intimidating giant. You know, the best advice I can give you this morning about parenting? Seek God. Listen to God. Model God in front of your children. That's the best advice I can give you. I'm not, I'm not here to say that every single parenting book in the world has no value, but listen, you'll read through 40 of them before you find three of them that actually help. You know, seek God. Trust God with it. And do what you do. As David said, I come in the name of the Lord. And I'm just going to trust God with being a parent. Being a parent can be a scary thing. I don't want to fail my kids. I, you know, I, especially in our modern day culture where we've got, we're competing with media, we're competing with video games, we're competing with movies, we're competing with, you know, the general public perception of what a good life looks like. And we can be so, so overwhelmed. And that fear of, am I going to fail as a parent? Can be quite a, quite a giant. Know this, God gives us the strength to do what God calls us to do. And if ever was, the, ever was there a day and age where, men, we just need to stand up and lead, and we need to stand up and be men of integrity and righteousness and live and model lives that, that are consistent with the Gospel to our children, it's today. It is. You know, children need boundaries. They need to know they're safe. They need to know that they're loved. They need to know the Word of God. They need to be taught the Word of God. Our culture, in large part, has become a fatherless one. Many fathers aren't around at all. And then a lot of fathers are home, but they're not really there. I've been guilty of that myself, if I'm honest with you this morning. You know, my presence is there. But don't talk to me. I've got other things to do. I'm busy with more significant things, like watching ESPN. It'll be over in an hour, and, and then you can discuss matters with me. We have to be careful not to think that the presence of the Father alone is enough. Kids do need quantity time. I, I, I've been told it's all about quality, not quantity. Well, that's not true. It's about both. You can't really have great quality time with your children without having quantity time as well. But it needs to be both. We need to be there for our children. You, Dad, are the most influential figure in your child's life. And then after you, Dad, the mother is the most influential figure in a, in a child's life. Parents. Proverbs 22 and verse 6 says to train up a child in the way of the Lord and when he's old he will not depart from it. You know that most important word in that verse. You want to pull that up? Proverbs 22.6 The most important word in that verse is the word train. 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 It's not tell a child. It's not drop them off at church so someone else can tell them. 
It's not make sure they can answer their Bible questions. Train. You ever been trained to do anything? Most of you that have jobs, you went through a training period. If you went through a training period, your boss didn't hand you a manual. Five minutes into the job, give it to you and say, go do it. No. Your boss said, follow me. Watch me. Here's what we do. Here's how this works. Here's how these things go together. And you're going to kind of have to figure out how to do it on your own, and you're going to come up with your own system. But here's how we do it. And you train the person. The word train comes along with, I'm going to show you. I'm not just going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you and show you. I'm going to model it for you so you can look at it, understand it, perceive it, and then I'm going to help you do it yourself. And ultimately, one day, the goal is that I'm able to step away entirely and you can function being the man or woman of God you're supposed to be. Now, that's what training your child is. I have seen people hold to this verse, and I don't mean to be mean-spirited this morning, but they were really poor trainers and think that just because they brought their children to church all their life that they can claim this verse and that when their children are old, they're not going to depart from the faith. That word trains very significant. Can I say this morning, fathers, we have a responsibility to train our families. Remember what I said earlier that man looks on the outward appearance. What do our children see when they look at us? They should see Christ. They should see a man or a woman that is working to be selfless, that is living a life to serve others, that is living a life that ultimately is for the purpose of glorifying God and bringing people into the kingdom. And I need to be able to have conversations with my children about here's how this works, here's what it looks like. You know, from a very early age, um, I was early, about four. At about four years old, I began discussing really deep things with my children about death, life after death, about how to be saved. I have no doubt that's why uh, all three of my children so far to date uh, made a personal commitment to ask for forgiveness and repent of their sins at the age of five. You know, our kids are smart. Honestly, they're smarter than we probably give them credit for. I'm reminded of the the young feller that came in the butcher shop or the, the barber shop and the barber was cutting hair, and he said to the guy he's cutting his hair, he said, this is one of the dumbest kids you will ever meet. And that guy getting his hair cut said, he is. He said, oh yeah, watch this. He said, come here, little guy. And he held out two quarters and a dollar bill. And he said, do you want two quarters or one dollar? The kid thought about it, took those two quarters, and walked out. And that barber said to that man getting his hair cut, I told you that kid's dumb. Well, the man got his hair cut, stepped out the door to go to his car and saw the kid over there getting a soda with his 50 cents. So he went over and he said, son, can I ask you a question? Why'd you take those two quarters instead of that dollar? He said, well, sir, the day I take the dollar, this game stops. <laughs> Our kids are smarter than we think. They know that if we don't live a life consistent with what we tell them, that if we're just telling them you need to serve God, be honest, don't lie, 
you know, uh, help others, be forgiving, be selfless. But then they watch our lives and they see that we don't listen to that and that we don't take our own advice. They see through that and they learn more from what they see and what they're trained than simply what they're told. And I believe personally that David had a dad that taught him to trust in God. And that when everybody else was afraid, courage came over David and said, you know what? Who is this Philistine that's defying God's armies? I remember all the stories my dad told me. I remember all the times that we played them out at home, the Red Sea parting and God destroying the enemies of Israel by bringing the Red Sea back upon him. And I remember the story about the walls of Jericho falling down and and God delivering Rahab and her family out of that. And I remember all the great things that God did for His people. Surely, this one giant is not going to stand in the way of God's people. David went to Saul. You know what Saul said? Saul said, put on my armor. Now, here's what the Bible tells us about Saul. Those of you that have been here the last couple of weeks, you know this. That he was a head taller than everyone else. That means he was two heads taller than me. Now, David was a young man. Obviously, he was old enough that he went and told Saul he'd killed a bear with his bare hands and a lion. And and he did these things. But he was still a young man. Not a full-grown man. Certainly wasn't as big as Saul. And Saul tried to put his armor on David. Now, if you, my friend are going to stand strong against the giants that will seek to destroy you and captivate you by fear, listen to this principle that David understood. You don't have to be anyone else but yourself. You can be you. God can use you the way you are. You don't have to be the coolest dad in town. You don't have to be the richest dad in town. You don't have to be the most successful or this or that or the funniest or any of that, the most athletic. Be who you are. You know, you are, the Bible says, uniquely made by God. That you were made by Him and for Him. That you are the workmanship of God. And God does not make junk. You are a special person this morning and you just need to be you. Too often, we fail to do what David did. And, and we, we, we see what everybody thinks we should be. Oh, you think I should wear this armor? Okay, well, sure, this is how I'll do it. I'll go fight the giant like this. Or, or, oh, you think I should parent this way? Okay, well, let me parent this way. You think I should be this or that? Stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Get into the Word of God. Build your convictions upon the Word of God. But you just be you. God's not about making copycats. How boring would that be? This world would be a really boring place if everybody was like me. I promise you that. But you know what? It would be a really boring place if everybody was like you too. We need diversity. And it's okay to be you. And David said, you know what? I'm not a king yet. I haven't been fitted with armor. But I have fought some battles before. And when I fought those battles before, I just trusted God. A couple of them I had to do with my bare hands. But out there in the field, I got pretty good with the sling. And if you'll just let me use my sling and a few, a few stones, I'll go and I'll fight that giant. And David went, and you know the story. 
He first declared, I'm here to do what I do in the name of the Lord. And he took that stone and he threw it forward. And God from that moment took that thing and lodged it right between the eyes of that giant. He fell backwards, turned around, actually fell on his face. And David went over, took his sword, cut his head off, brought his head back into town. And said, here is the giant that was defying Israel. And at this moment, this is where we'll pick up next week. We see God taking the hearts of His people and moving them towards David. And the people begin to sing the song. David has slain his ten thousands and Saul has slain his thousands. Saul heard the song and became greatly jealous. And we would begin to see Saul's attack on David, which is where we'll pick up next week. But this morning as our worship team comes, I want to say this. There's not a giant in your life that you're facing that your God cannot deliver you from. There's not anything in your life that's, that's, that's bigger than God's ability to give you the strength to overcome and to come out victorious. I know that all of us face different giants and that sometimes the giants we face are scary. Put your eyes on God. Know that you'll never defeat a giant if you're not willing to go out and take that stone and launch it. I know that it's parenting. Boy, parenting can be tough business in our day and time. You look at the the length of time that someone else has your kids, especially during the school year, versus the amount of time that you have with them, it can become overwhelming. But God will give us the strength. Whatever the giant is in your life this morning, I pray that you won't run the other way, that you won't be afraid. Remember, God's in divine sovereign control of your life. God can take any situation you're facing and make it work out for your good. He is the divine chess player. He is in control. Don't be afraid by everything else that might be going on around us or in our culture or in our country. Our God's on the throne. He's still in control. This morning, is He on the throne of your life? Lord, I pray that You'd move all across this room. God, I pray right now that You'd encourage fathers. Encourage mothers. God, let us just be reminded that You are the God that delivers. Let us be reminded that giants do fall. God, let us have a spirit of courage rise up in us to say, you know what? We're going to make a difference in this culture. We're going to make a difference in our world. We're not going to sit on the sidelines and be afraid of what's going to happen when we stand up for God. We're going to be men and women of integrity, of humble service, but who are willing to stand up to the giants that try to stop the work of God in our lives, in our church, in our our communities, in our workplaces. Lord, move all across this room. So you thought you had to keep this up All the world